0: So that old insight about something happening at conception could very well be accurate, but it could very well have nothing to do with the sex act being holy or unholy. Maybe if the sex act is undertaken in a spirit of lustfulness and without the welcoming of a child, then yeah, that certainly is uh, the beginning of this, this wounding. And the sin in the flesh The experience of sin in the flesh is this thing we all carry inside that I have to do the right things to be okay with myself, with others, and even with God. I am a conditionally lovable, conditionally acceptable human being. I'm not okay just because I am. I have to do something to make me okay. Now, if you want to know what the false self is, it's the self that's sitting in the middle of that attitude saying, I have to do something to be worthy, okay? And it's doing that even before God, right? I'll do a novena. I'll do nine first Fridays. I'll say a rosary on my knees. And if the false self saying the rosary doesn't do a bit of good, it only thinks it's worthy now because it has made itself worthy, okay? But that's what we evolve. And again, it's a very sneaky thing because we can even bring it into the religious life where it is not only insidious, but absolutely destructive. Tomorrow I'll talk about that, false self and spirituality. But I make myself okay by doing the right things. False self. Everybody's got it, right? It's spiritual direction. I surely have never met someone who didn't have that thing. I mean, even show up in prayer and was sitting right. Oh, the prayer word. I didn't say it right this time. Oh, my hands are wrong. Oh, God. Yeah, God. I've got to think about God. That's why I'm sitting here. All that stuff is the false self, right? And the true self is you erase the false self. There it is. It's always there. We'll talk about that tomorrow, too. So that's the wounding, and you can see how it sets us up for codependency. We need approval from another person. That helps us to be okay with ourselves. I'm not okay with me, but if you're okay with me, then I can be okay with me. And the way that I get you to say I'm okay is by doing the things you like and by not doing the things you don't like. If you have just a little bit of that and you get in a kind of a relationship with an unhealthy person, well, you'll really develop codependency very quickly. And even if you get in a relationship with a healthy person, you will have your moments. Right? (laughs) My wife is a pretty healthy person, you see, and we have our moments. Two false selves eventually do come out in the open at each other. And uh, to the extent that we buy into that agenda, uh, we can really get messed up. The agenda that other people make me okay and I have to do the right thing so they can make me okay and blah, blah, blah. Uh, And you get two false selves arguing with each other. Uh, It can be quite a mess. If you want to see that, just watch TV any night and you'll see those (laughs) dynamics illustrated quite clearly. The whole presumption in many of these shows is that other people make me okay or not okay, right? Soap operas, country western music. Don't want to step on too many toes, but where would they be without that stuff? All right, so let's go back to what did we call her, Sally, and uh, Bill. This time we'll draw them as two circles. And inside they have this pain. And, you know, you can remember all those dynamics. And she's got this thing with mood-altering chemicals. And he's involved in her problems. And the whole climate in which children are born into the world is permeated with uh, very much conditional love And maybe even stronger than that, we could even say abuse and rejection, neglect. Very strong disapproval at times. And so that's the emotional context in which you're growing up. How do you do that? How do you grow up in a world like that? Again, the studies from clinical hypnosis are, or they're not even studies. Most of this stuff I'm telling you about from clinical hypnosis just popped out spontaneously. Uh, We find a way to do it as early as in the womb. One woman reported an abortion attempt. Again, her mother and her aunt were uh, trying to flush her out with some kind of fluid. And it smelled strong, and it was disgusting. But she (coughs) found a way to withdraw herself from it and hide in the womb. She found a way to protect herself. Using another kind of therapeutic language, we would say she, she <clears throat> put together some kind of defense between herself, her real self, and the outside world. She found a way to protect herself. And that's what will have to happen to every child growing up in this family. On the one hand, they have written into the soul by the creator a developmental impetus to be healthy, to be whole, that cannot be denied. They will be striving toward that like any human being that is born. But on another hand, there's almost nothing in this environment that gives them permission to experience what that means, to discover that, to nurture that. So they'll have to be protecting themselves. These children then all develop what we call survival roles. They find a way to survive emotionally in this family. There's a lot of different ways they do it, but there's four main ways that we see. I'm going to draw these sort of like a little family tree here, and we'll put four children, and then we'll talk about these roles. Uh, One possibility, one possible role uh, we call the hero. Now, all of these children will have pain, And so the hero will have pain inside. And it's not a pain that they're maybe all that conscious of because they find a way to defend themselves from it. Whenever it comes in, they split it off of their consciousness. They just shove it way down inside. So this hero has inside himself, their true feeling is they have some fear. We always have fear when we're loved conditionally. The only time we're free from fear completely is when As St. John says in his first epistle, perfect love casts out all fear. Only when we know we are perfectly loved is fear melted away. So they have fear because they don't know that they're perfectly loved. They feel very conditionally loved. And fear is maybe the deepest wound in the soul. They have some shame and feel like they're not valued for who they are, only for what they can do. They have some uh, guilt about doing the wrong things. They have some hurt and so forth. The heroes cope with this by trying to do lots of good things. So they're, you might call them, achievers. They make good grades in school. They'll be the star of the baseball team and the basketball team. Um, They can be very popular on the school ground. they get a lot of approval from this, right? They bring worth to the family and to themselves. If you think of this family as, as not just a, a collection of people, but as a, a, a system of people who are connected by the rules and the feelings that they share in common, then the hero brings worth to the whole family, not just himself. But the community looks at this hero and says, I don't know, Sally and Bill are kind of a mess, but they must be doing something right to raise a kid like this. And, they, and, the, and the parents can, they can look at this kid and say, well, thank God for old so-and-so, you know. They, we must be doing something right. <laughs> they, they are doing what we call triangulating. They, they don't have to look at themselves when they look at this kid and focus on this kid and obsess on this kid. And uh, this kid's getting a lot of approval for doing all these wonderful things. But the price they're paying, of course, is they're getting increasingly out of touch with themselves. Now, there is uh, a feeling that comes when one is approved. Have any of you ever experienced approval? You know what I'm talking about here. How many of you like approval? (laughs) Right? You like it when someone says, not just what you do, is wonderful, but you're wonderful and intelligent and good-looking and so talented and such a rare and special person. Uh, you like that? He likes that too. How long does that last? Oh, a half a day. Then you want that again, right? It's almost like a drug. In fact, Father Anthony DeMello talks about it in a videotape somewhere as a drug. We were given this drug at an early age. A drug is approval. How many of you like disapproval? Like someone to say you're stupid, irresponsible, lazy, ugly. You like that? If we want to be free from disapproval, we have to give up our love for approval. You see, if we want to give up the hangover, you have to give up the drug too. But he's hooked. (laughs) This guy is hooked. And he'll stay hooked for years and years and years. probably burn out in his mid to late 30s. You just, you know, you have to keep figuring out what gets you approval, and that gets old, you know. But one thing, other people, you know, they, they hold the cards, you don't. You have to figure out what pleases others, and that's such a job because they keep changing their minds. Now, here's another person we call the lost child. And the lost child survives in this family by really keying into the rule that says, don't rock the boat, don't make waves, okay? You might see the hero is really keying into the rule that says, uh, uh, always be strong, always be perfect, uh, that kind of stuff. The lost child tries to stay out of trouble. I mean, there's a kind of approval that comes from that, from just not being a troublemaker. They bring relief to the family. You know, Billy and Sally can say, well, at least we don't have to worry about this one. They're never in anything. They won't make especially good grades in school. They'll make pretty average grades. Won't make real bad grades either. They can really fade into the woodwork, too. This is a person that sometimes seems to disappear. When things get rough in the family, they'll run to their room, where the hero may try to stop things from getting out of hand, this person will run to the room, uh, shy away from any kind of controversy, any kind of argument. They're out of the picture. And uh, that's a survival thing for them. They sometimes very close to pets and stuffed animals, have imaginary friends. That tends to happen. I'm convinced that there's, there's a spiritual dimension to some of this. Uh, these people, as I say, disappear. And, and of course, they don't disappear physically, but emotionally and spiritually they seem to disappear. So that even as a trained counselor, working with these people in a group, you know, I've seen myself at the end of a session saying, well, I guess we've heard from everybody, now we can close the group. And there she was, sitting on that chair right there. She hadn't opened her mouth the whole afternoon wasn't about to open her mouth either. And uh, she had literally disappeared sitting on the chair. And someone said, well, we haven't heard from uh, Myrna yet. And I say, well, we sure haven't. And you know, (laughs) that role was uh, even playing there. Another role is a scapegoat role. This is the black sheep of the family. Now, this might seem odd, you know, to have a person who is a black sheep and a troublemaker. What are they getting out of that, right? You know, they make bad grades. They hang out with the wrong friends. uh, They're constantly getting in trouble. They get a lot of attention, too, don't they? They get an awful lot of attention. And mom and dad can look at them and blame all their troubles on this kid, which they do from time to time. But if you consider the family, again, as a system and not just a random collection of individuals, and you see it as kind of a tornado where things are getting sucked up in one place and spewing out of another, then all of the emotional negativity in the family is like spewing out in this kid. They're discharging the family's negative emotional energy. They're acting it out. So in some ways, this is the healthiest kid in the family because their emotional experience and their behavior are one. What they do and how they feel is one. The biggest phony in the family is the hero. I say that with some experience at that role, that what you're showing the world and how you feel inside are miles away. You're doing one thing, but you feel absolutely, totally different. So there's the biggest split in the hero. But this guy, or girl, is, uh, is, it's one. We say they're congruent. What they do, who they are, how they feel, one thing. Now, mom and dad would not agree with that, for sure. There, there is also a strategy that the scapegoat has. They are The payoff for them is that maybe you can get so much disapproval that it just doesn't matter anymore. You ever think about that? Like, disapproval really, you know, if it doesn't affect me anymore, then who can hurt me? So that's part of what they're about. The hero's dealing with it by trying to get more approval, and that's wonderful. But what if disapproval doesn't bother me? Then I'm free, right? You see what I'm saying? If I just don't care what you say. If I just do it, screw up so many times that nobody cares. Of course, it's very hard for a child (laughs) to do that, but you can become pretty hard inside. Part of their role is to bring the family, uh, let let me put it as they bring health to the family by usually uh, dragging the family into either a treatment center or uh, the criminal justice system or through the school the family will get health. It's pretty typical for you know, mom and dad to drop this kid off at a psychiatric hospital and say, uh, you take care of him for a while, and uh, we'll be back to pick him up in six weeks when you fix him. And the counselors will say, all right, are you willing to come to some family groups? And they'd say, well, there's nothing wrong with us. It's this kid, man. You know, you fix this kid, and we'll be all right. That's good. We want you to help us do that, so come. And you, then you see the whole family, this, where the, this child makes sense, in the context of the family. And there's another one we would then call another child a mascot. And the mascot brings diversion. This is the person who can tell a joke when the going gets rough, or they'll spill a glass of milk. Anything to uh, break the stress and the intensity by doing something cute or fun or entertaining. So they're constantly trying to change the focus of the stress into something a little more light-hearted or, as I said, entertaining. And again, mom and dad can focus on this child and be entertained. So the masc- mascot is, again, kind of like the hero in the sense that they feel one way inside, but they act totally different on the outside. Now, you can certainly see a combining of these roles in families. And when you don't have four children, you might see a hero lost child, you know, or a scapegoat mascot. You'll never see a scapegoat hero. You know, those are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And you'll see something of these roles in almost any family. Healthy, healthy families and unhealthy families. The problem with very unhealthy families is you have to play this role so much that you get frozen there. This is, this is how you learn how to be as a person. There's a wonderful story about a tailor in Germany called Brumbach the Tailor. Brumbach was the best tailor in Germany. This is related to this whole roles issue here. Now, one day a man went to get measured for a suit. And Brumbach measured him, and they picked out the material. And in two weeks, the man went back to get his suit tried on the pants and they fit really well, except it looked like one leg was a little longer than the other. The material was beautiful, but there was this problem. So he brought it to Brombach and showed him, but he didn't know, and Brombach was ready to go on vacation, this was his last customer. Gotta get this guy out of here. So he said, yeah, yeah, okay, I see. One leg's too long. But if you stand like this, it, it, it doesn't look too bad. the guy was, you know, he didn't wasn't didn't have it all upstairs. So he he stood like that and said, you know, you're right. It, it, it balances out really nicely when you stand like that. So uh, he went and tried the coat on, and one shoulder was longer than the other. So he went and showed Brumbach. And Brumbach says, how am I going to get rid of this guy? I can't do these alterations now. He says, OK, yeah, I see your problem. But again, if you stand like this, it really doesn't look too bad. In fact, it looks pretty good. And the guy said, yeah, you know, you're right. I can Just stand like that and be all right. So he put his suit on, and he went and he stood in the bus, and he's standing in the bus like this, <laughs> all lopsided like that. And the guy sitting down in the seat next to where he's standing says, what a beautiful suit, he says. "It must have been made by Brombach the tailor. <laughs> he says, it was. How could you tell? He says, because only Brombach could fit a cripple like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, that's what a roll is. A roll is like a suit. It's a whole set of behaviors. Uh, a role is a cluster of behaviors that help us to perform a certain function. A role is, you might say, a, a kind of a stance we have to take in a certain situation. And these survival roles are like that. They're like suits of clothes that we can put on. Maybe they're even suits of armor. And We put them on, and it helps us to survive in an environment charged with conditional love. But we have to stand crooked in order to survive. You have to stand like this, like Brumbach's person. Now in a healthy family, everybody has to do this sometimes because there are no perfect families. So we all have to learn some kinds of ways of coping with stress. But in a a healthy family, you can move out of your role, and maybe you can try all of these on at some time, And uh, you're not stuck with one way of being yourself. In an unhealthy family, though, you really get stuck in one of these roles. This is how you learn to be you. And you take that with you in the workplace, and you take that into your marriage, and you act like this, so you're a hero, and you find a scapegoat to take care of, and there you start the family all over again, okay? And that's where the whole adult children's recovery movement probably started. And these treatment centers across the country in the last 10 years, remember I told you about them, about 115 or so, when we got started. People saw this kind of lecture and they said, hmm, this one is me and this one is Sally and this one is Jimbo and this one is Bobby and so forth. And, you know, I've been doing that my whole life. And, uh, yeah, that's me, all right. I'm doing the right things on the outside, but in the inside, it's just a kind of a hollow, empty person. And I'm just terrified of anybody really knowing who I am because they probably wouldn't like me if they knew what I really felt like. So I have to be doing wonderful things. I wonder who I really am, (laughs) okay? And that's where the whole adult children recovery movement starts talking about roles and the wounded inner child and the judgmental parent tapes we carry in our heads, that's how that got going. And uh, as I guess you all know, it's uh, really going full steam ahead. Uh, It's probably the largest growth in the whole recovery movement is with the adult children, not just of alcoholics, but all kinds of families coming into this movement. Well, now, if you think about a workplace, a workplace too is not exactly a family. But it's a system, isn't it? It's a system of relationships. And the system is governed by certain rules. And you have to play certain roles in there. And if some of this went on in your family, then you take some of this into the workplace. And even if you end up in a healthy workplace, you bring some of that old way of operating into the workplace itself. And so you don't talk about problems, let's say, or you're trying to get approval and avoiding disapproval. And we act out our whole family system wherever we go and whatever we do. That's a whole other dimension that we could get into is how this thing comes into the workplace. And there have been some books written about that as well. So this has all been an answer to the question, (laughs) are there some people who are... uh, most likely to get into codependent relationships. And you can see that all of these, these people, but especially the hero, uh, lost child, and mascot types, I'd say, especially the hero and lost child, are sitting ducks for codependent relationships. Because they're very focused on approval, or they're very focused on avoiding disapproval, and they might try to do that through caretaking type relation, caretaking behaviors. So they know that role very well even before they get into it in their own maybe marital relationship. They've they've been practicing it all their lives. Now why don't we stop here and just see what some of your questions or comments might be. Yes? What's the success rate in these treatment centers? Well, as Mark Twain says, <laughs> uh, The statistics, are you can read all different kinds of things. Some treatment centers keep their own statistics and claim 75% recovery. Uh, I read a textbook that was used with us in college that says there's absolutely no difference between treatment and non-treatment when you look at the people five years later, okay? It's made no difference whatsoever. Just as many get well by not going to treatment as by going to treatment. So it's, it's really hard to say. The truth is probably somewhere between <laughs> those two kinds of statistics. All you can say for sure is that there are some individuals who went through treatment who will say that had it not been for that, you know, this is what turned their lives around. And had it not been for that kind of start, getting off the street, out of the old environment, into a place where they could be safe, a place that was structured you know, Had they not had that start, they would not have made it. I think that kind of testimony is, is valid, too, and valuable. We can't say if they would have made it or not, but they certainly believe they would not have made it without that. But so it's mean, really hard to say. It's really hard. If, if, you feel, if you don't have a problem, there's no reason to go. Is there... No, there isn't. And most uh, people... So I mean, you can get very confused about thinking, of where do I fit in all this, And if you, you don't think you have a problem, why nobody will unless they believe that <laughs> probably not uh, I don't think again there's anybody that's free of the false self that I was talking about earlier and we'll talk about it much more length tomorrow none of us are really free of that dimension of our personality that says I'm not really okay unless I'm doing something to be okay, okay? I'm, I'm not okay just because I exist that's not enough I mean, it really should be enough. That, that's where God stands, at least on the question of our being okay. Uh, but generally, it's true. Most people don't begin to investigate their family background and how they were affected by that or whether they have addictions that are affecting their life until there are problems that they cannot run away from anymore. That's how most people get interested in some of this stuff is uh, they pay consequences. Now, another way some people get in is like if they're really committed to growth, their own personal growth or spiritual growth, and they begin to confront some of this stuff as a result of their growth. They begin to to hit walls within themselves or uh, they begin to discover uh, blockages in relationships or they begin to discover... Hmm, they're not so healthy in the way they talk about feelings. That's another way some people get into this is, I'm really OK, but I see that this is there and I want to get better. I see that this is a problem. But you're right, I've given you a lot of information this afternoon. And if you've never been exposed to it, it's a lot. You, know, you have these sheets to follow up. And of course, the book, Freedom from Codependency, which you, know, you have close at hand. Uh, <laughs> That's there, too. It's got a lot of this stuff in it. Yes? Uh, Phil, just once, could you go over each of these in order that we would recognize the mechanisms in ourselves? Would you say what what they would be as adults? I mean, I understand about the lost child who goes off to a room by himself. How would we recognize that in ourselves? Well, a lost child going off to your room by yourself is not just a physical act. (laughs) It's also an emotional act. So I can be in the room, but not here. Okay? Uh, I can uh, disappear emotionally, even when I'm sitting among people. So here's the game. The environment says you're not okay just as you are. I'm going to be okay by doing wonderful things. That's the hero. Very often goes into helping professions, by the way. They frequently become counselors or doctors or nurses or... Ministers, uh, all kinds of uh, helping roles. Lost child. The way I'm going to deal with this whole conditional love situation is I'm going to not let myself be noticed. Now, Even if I have to go to work or do something, I'm not going to be noticed for doing good things or bad things. I'm just going to be Joe or Sally average. I mean, even their addictions are quiet addictions. These people don't usually get chemical addictions. They're much more inclined to food addictions, which are quiet addictions. You don't make a lot of noise after indulging a food addiction. Scapegoats, the way I'm going to deal with this is by making so much doggone trouble that it just won't bother me anymore. It'll be like water off a duck's back. We know that character real well, right? And the mascot is just entertaining, diversionary, jokes, humor, uh, that kind of stuff. Everybody's probably got elements of all of these. But again, the unhealthier the family, the more distinct the role will be and the harder it will be to switch roles. you get locked in. Okay. Does that answer your yeah. question? Okay. No. Okay. Any, anyone else have any question or comment on this? How many of you is this your first introduction to this kind of material? You've never seen this kind of thing before? Okay. Good bit of you, then. Does it seem like a lot for one afternoon, then? Does it make sense? All right. Anybody else have something? Yes, Tom. I think, Bill. sometimes when people really, when you're talking about, growth, what makes them grow very quickly is, especially when they start looking at these rules and they start recognizing them, and when they come to a realization that the rule that I learned, especially since I'm a good learner, I'm passing on to the people whom I love. That usually is a very eye-opening experience for people. When that happens. They say, "This rule has never helped me," and now I'm passing it on to people that I love. You know, I don't want to do that. And that many times is the impetus to change and to begin to confront. Right, parenting is an excellent example of that. What we learned, we will pass on. And if what we learned has affected us, uh, it will affect our children as well, Okay. How can you know if you're free of this? Anybody tell me? What would be the sign that you're free of all this codependency? What? <laughs> Dead? <laughs> no, maybe not. I wonder just how much we really leave behind when we die, besides the body. You know, maybe we go right on with this codependency, and that was really uh, this is off the record here, so. But uh, while I was uh, working in these treatment centers, I was saying, look how much we're doing to try to help people break free in this world. And I had this, this, this wondering and musing about, what might there be in the afterlife to help people to break free? A, a vision of purgatory maybe that's got a few less flames in it than some of us are accustomed to thinking about. Uh, a place where people can be helped to see the reality of what their life has been and to let go of the unhealthy parts of that to prepare for the next stage. Um, uh, kind of a comforting thought. Well, again, what would be the sign that you're free? Is anybody free? Yes. There are people who are free. Right. There are people who are free of this stuff. What would be the sign? What we've been describing here, the system of rules and all, you might think of that as what scripture calls the world system. The world system says you're okay if you do the right things, and we'll tell you what those are, and somebody's going to benefit from that, not necessarily you, okay? Are there people who are free of the world system, who are in the world but not of the world? What would be the sign? I almost, what? I almost like to leave that question. Oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Non-conformist. This is a nonconformist. I mean, I mean, the type of person just, it doesn't seem like a lot of others. Okay. In, in insofar as like they might necessi- not necessarily dress right like the way everybody else dresses. Right. Like get into the same thing as, as uh, everybody else that they run around with. they're they're more their own person. Okay. Did you all hear her? Good. Those are good. Good criteria. They're free. They're free. That's right. Anything else? You're free. If, number one, you, you're, not, uh, you're not free by denying your whole emotional nature. That's one strategy. That's the strategy of the survival rule, is I'm just gonna deny the parts of myself that I'm uncomfortable with. Now, that's not the answer. I'm not sure we can succeed at that permanently anyway. We're free if if we can have our lives and our feeling and our experience, but not have our behavior and our decision determined by what other people think, what other people want. Okay? We can consider that, but we make our own decisions. We're free if we make our choices. We make our decisions. We decide what we will do and not do. No one will tell us that. They can ask, they can plead, but we decide. Even with our love, love is not a compulsion, it's not an obligation, it's a choice that we make, right? I will love you, even if I should, even if it's my responsibility, I choose. When one can say, I lay down my own life, no one takes it from me. Did you ever hear that one before? Who said that? A free man, right? When one can say, how can you worship God when you look to one another for approval instead of the approval that comes from God? Who said that? That's Jesus too. When we're free from the fear of disapproval, when we're free from the need for approval, then we're free and that's possible. But we have to learn that, and again, that's what our spirituality teaches us, is how to learn that. But you can't be free from that until you see how you're caught in that. You have to see how that whole web that we call the world system has sort of reached in and and, and grabbed all of us at some level. And how miserable that makes us. We have to see how we've been caught. And the part of us that sees that is not in it. The seer of the false self is the true self. So as a guiding principle, we practice honesty with self. We practice total acceptance of self, no matter what we discover. We accept ourselves. We practice non-judgmentalism of self, which is another kind of acceptance. And a way of loving ourselves is not to judge ourselves. And we practice making our own decisions, no matter what other people think, just so long as our decision is motivated by love. And of course, we consider all the commandments and all that as part of it. I'm not saying, you know, what you want to do, do it. But freedom is possible. It really is. And it it is to bring us the freedom from these kinds of entanglements and dynamics that I think, you know, Christ came to bring us that freedom where he says, we can be in the world, but not of the world. And another sign of that is serenity. There's no more fear or anxiety or mental preoccupation. We can be here in the moment and enjoy what's here in the moment without thinking about what we need to be getting ready for or without being on the way to something. To let that go and to be where we are, let that be, okay? But it's work, (laughs) a lot of work. Okay, yes. That's the answer for Bill. I mean, he's got all these problems up here, you know. Yes, it's the, the answer so for that's him. That's his problem. He's just got he to... He has to he has do all that. These things here. Right. He may go through some problems, too, but if he can stop it before then... Right. Freedom is not... Yeah, right. He can get out of that, and, and Sally needs to do the same thing. Yeah, but... She not. needs to do exactly the same <laughs> thing. I have to so a lot us. more <laughs> Oh no, she's got a much easier time of it than him. Oh really? Absolutely. It's much easier to recover from alcoholism than codependency. You can live well without alcoholism, without alcohol, but try living without relationships. You're always around people who are always making new expectations, and they're sticking you with this approval and disapproval thing, and if there's a little vulnerability inside of you, it will get hooked, and yet it's constant vigilance to maintain yourself in that freedom you see but it's the same answer for her and you know this by the way is what the 12 step process does is it takes oh this is so much where do i begin with step 1 and then with step 2 and then with step 3 where it breaks the thing down into little bit little manageable chunks that you can do that really add up so that by step 12 we're saying Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, you know, that something has happened to us, we've discovered that we've broken free from that. All right. Uh, Anything else? I guess we're just about quitting time here. Okay. Well, I guess that's it then. Uh, Thank you all for coming. It's been most enjoyable.